Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll go down to the um, Bible memory work from the uh, Catechism Table of Duties, addressed to the youth. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves. Am I? Do you have the right one? Am I reading the wrong one? Okay. You can join with me. Let's start at the beginning. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5, 5-6. All right, and we'll let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. So um, we're picking back up in the Gospel of Mark. And I know you enjoyed having, having uh, Pastor Vanderbush here with you teaching you, but now you have to put up with me again. So it is what it is. We all have to bear our crosses, right? <laughs> You're just saying that. Um, you know, I really think Pastor Vanderbush should make a side gig out of um, reading audiobooks. You know, mm-hmm. he's just got that that voice. Um, anyway, beside the point. All right, so we had finished up uh, the parable of the sower in Matthew. Sorry, in Mark chapter four. Um, Matthew four is on my mind. Right, so that was the the gospel today. Mark chapter 4, and then we had also done the uh, light under the basket uh, section, I think. So um, we're picking back up in uh, 426, just kind of plugging along here and following. We'll see how far we get. And uh, we get a succession here of parables, uh, especially verses 26 through 32, um, and, and as well as the parable of the sower and the light under the basket that we had already covered about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens, as Jesus likes to call it. And, you know, this is, I just broke this marker. Um, I have to switch out for orange. The... Um, When you come across something like the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God in the Bible, this is kind of like food and water, right? Like I preached about, where you just have like so many things to talk about. Um, I mean, I just picked a few food and water passages out for the sermon, but like there's, it's such a big theme in the scripture that you almost can't deal with it, right? Like you could do like a, six weeks study on the idea of kingdom in the Bible and like not exhaust what the scriptures have to say about it. 
Um, I'll try and kind of summarize here the way that I see um, kingdom if we kind of go from Genesis to Revelation. But I want to put it in con- the, the, these parables in context because when Jesus teaches about the kingdom, he is teaching on something very, very important. Right? So uh, if we think about this idea of the kingdom, Genesis starts out with the kingdom. Right? Adam is not only a husband uh, of the family, but he's also, if you kind of think about the three estates, um, which we talked about in the Catechism Bible study, I'm sure, where you have what, what, what's kind of the, the three places, that, the three realms of life that we have. We have the family, the church, and the state. Right? We have um, you know, our family, our church, and then the, the kind of rest of the, the world, including the government, but also our job, right? the, um, the economy, right? the world kind of outside of our homes and the church. If you think about the three estates, Adam was not only the father, right, the head of the family, but for Adam, he was also the, the pastor, right, and, and the governor. Um, of the, that's the, the whole thing was there, right? It was just his family. So he was the, the pastor, the governor, and the father, okay? And you can see that, that, especially the reason I'm pointing out governor is, right, because it's a kingdom of sorts, and he's given to have dominion, right, in the beginning over the whole earth, and which is another way to say to have a kingdom, right? And um, so really the idea of having a kingdom for God was the idea from the very beginning, that the world would be God's kingdom, right? It'd be his dominion, and that his people would rule, right? Okay, so then that's, that's the beginning, what happens? Sin happens, right? Corruption happens. And so what happens when corruption happens? Adam fails at this job, right? He's kicked out of the garden. And then uh, very early on, we see that the kingdoms of man are not what God designed them to be. And when the kingdom of man tries to come together, a la Tower of Babel, that God has to split it up into many kingdoms, right? So then we get um, these, let's say, small k, right, kingdoms, um, or we could also kind of connect this to the idea of nations, right? And these nations uh, fight and bicker, right? And they're constantly battling against one another. And um, in the in the God, God's kingdom, right? And then kind of along with this, right? We have this kind of contrasted with God's, you know, capital K kingdom with his people and and his church. And God wants them to look different, right? This is the whole idea um, of, of holiness. He wants them to be set apart. He wants them to look different than the other nations. That's why we get all these kind of obscure rules in the Old Testament about like you don't eat shellfish, things like that, because that's setting his kingdom, his people apart from the, the other nations, right? And he, in fact, he chooses a nation, right, Israel, to be the place of his kingdom. Now, of course, this nation that he chooses, this people that he chooses, they they even for a time function differently than the world in that they don't have a king because God's supposed to be their king, right? They have judges um, in, in the book of Judges, but even before that, they just have a prophet, right? They have Moses and Joshua, and then, and then they get the judges, and then they complain and complain, and they want to be like everyone else, so then they get a king, and so then we had the United Kingdom, right, with David and Solomon, um, but then that slowly devolves into the divided kingdom, right, um, with uh, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. All right. So then uh, that divided kingdom um, then digresses to the point where God punishes them by sending them into captivity, and God's kingdom looks like it's in disarray. Right. And so then um, eventually, right, they get to return from captivity. And uh, we have kind of more or less a united Israel again. Um, um, second temple, right? Second temple, Israel, second temple, Judaism. And, uh, and then out of there, Jesus, the king, finally comes. Right Now, Jesus is the king. 
Now, when he comes, right, this is kind of part, part of the point of Mark, is that they, when they recognize him as Messiah, one of the things they recognize him as is not immediately the son of God, right? But they recognize him as the one who's supposed to be king, right? And so the disciples are always asking these questions like, when are you going to restore the fortunes of Israel, right? Because they want to get back to this, right? They want to get back to the United Kingdom because they have, they have a short memory, right? They don't remember that the whole point in the beginning was dominion over the whole earth. They just want to get back to this United Kingdom where they can kind of have their own, their own rule, right? Um, back to what they got when they complained. So, uh, but then think about Jesus as king, right? Jesus uh, is king in a way that is very different than other kings, right? He's humble. He preaches as one who has authority. And when he is, the, I think the best place you can see this is at his crucifixion. When he is inaugurated as king, as the royal one, what do we get? We get a crown of thorns, right? And we get a throne of the cross. Not a king that you would expect. Not a kind of kingdom that you would expect. And this is where we really catch up with today, is that the kingdom that God preaches about, about is very different, right? It's a very different kind of kingdom. Now, this continues because this kingdom is established, right, with Jesus. It's been inaugurated, right? It's began, right? And Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? He says, expand my kingdom, right? Expand the kingdom of God. So it's started, but it's not complete yet. So um, we also get with Jesus, right, this kind of thing of uh, now and not yet with the kingdom. Now and not yet. So it started, but it's not fully there yet. When is it going to be fully there? At the return of Jesus, right? When the king comes back in glory, right? So we have the, the inauguration of the kingdom in shame and humility, but he is going to come back again in glory. And this is, I think, Psalm 2 is one of the most important psalms. Psalm 2 and 110 some of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, some of the most important psalms, because they both talk about how Jesus is the king. I got to switch sides again. The sun changed on me. All right. How Jesus is the king and how when he comes back, every earthly king, right? Because we still have like all these nations, right? We still have all these false kingdoms in a sense. Every earthly king will have to bow to the Lord Jesus, right? And if they don't bow and worship him, then he will put them, his enemies under his feet, right? And how the kings of this earth are plotting against Jesus. Now, um, this is also very important. Just, uh, we, I think we talked about this a little bit with the table of duties and, and the idea of government, but... Um, Luther talked about this in, in the idea of two kingdoms, right? That simultaneously now with this kind of, now that we it's been started, but it's not fully realized yet, that as Christians on this earth, we're simultaneously living in two kingdoms, right? We're living in God's kingdom in the church, but we also live in the, the left, what Luther called the left-hand kingdom of the world, right? And we have to kind of deal with the, that, that um, having a foot in both worlds, so to speak, right? Now, I would say that, that that's actually probably not a precise way to say that because really we belong to the right-hand kingdom. We belong to God's kingdom more than the, the world's kingdom, but we still have to kind of participate in a way with the, with the left-hand kingdom. Um, so that's, that's the five-minute version. That was probably more than five minutes, but that's the shortest I can make it for now. But I, I just want you to see how big this idea of kingdom is. Right, they're, they're really the whole story of the Bible is about God's kingdom. It's about the kingdom that he first established and the downfall of that kingdom and how he's restoring that kingdom. Right? And of course, wrapped up in that is all the other things of the Bible that we could talk about, like sin and the forgiveness of sins and, and, and all of that. Right? I mean, the central message of the Bible is Jesus crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Don't get me wrong. But um, one way to talk about that is about the idea of kingdom. 
And Jesus, I mean, he constantly is preaching on this, constantly giving these parables. Okay, any questions on that before we actually read the parables? Do you have something, John? Well, Jesus repeatedly talks about whoever endures to the end will be saved. Mm-hmm. So, being since we are part of his earthly kingdom at this time, for those that... So there's... I'm putting this badly. It probably requires more thought. That... Being in part of his kingdom here on earth, there's this idea of having to endure to the end. Right, and that goes along with um, something we touched on in that, which is that the kingdom of Jesus now does not look, and this is exactly in some ways what the parables are about, it does not look glorious, right? So the world sees... um, what the church is one foundation, and that hymn, there's that line. I, I almost just quoted it by accident, so I'm going to actually try and quote it. Um, the world sees her oppressed by heresies distressed. Right? So the world looks at the church, and it's like, oh, you know, look at those rundown buildings. Look at those hypocrites. Look at those people who don't do what they say and preach. Um, you know, and, and I'm there's a... Again, it's now and not yet, so there's this isn't always true, but um, look at all the division in the church, right? Um, or even, you know, come to our church service and look and, it, you know, why are they, what are they doing with some bread and wine? You know, what are they doing with some water? You know, it, it doesn't look glorious in a sense, right? Now, at, with, with the eyes of faith, we can see that it is glorious, Right, and and we can see that Jesus is here now, and we can look past the ugliness, if you will, um, to the beauty. And um, but the world, uh, it does it doesn't look nice, right? And so the kingdom now, it does involve suffering, right? And Jesus was hated, and he says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too, you know. So. Living in God's kingdom now, it's not all sunshine and butterflies, right? It's um, suffering, persecution, um, sometimes ugliness and division, right? All sorts of things. And so enduring to the end does involve this this kind of um, life of faith where we have to trust that something better is coming and that something better is here now, but it, it's harder to see. So hopefully that kind of ties some of that together. All right, so um, verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So obviously we should interpret this with the passages that are right around it, right? So so are the seed. We already talked about that immensely. So the seed, the seed is the gospel, the good news, the word. And... Uh, the man here is um, Christ, right, um, mainly, but also us. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter the seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow, and he himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. What's that Thanksgiving hymn? Um, First the grain and then the year and then the whole thing shall appear. How's that go? You know, it's a Thanksgiving hymn. Um, come, you thankful people, come. Is that is that line in there? Oh, come on. All right, I'll look it up in a second. Um, and after that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Okay, so. Um, the word is spread, right, on the ground. And um, I like this line. I think this is very Christological in a sense. Should, he should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. Um, Jesus does kind of, it, Jesus is kind of sleepy, right? So uh, one, um, at the end of this chapter, we're going to get when he's asleep in the boat, right? And um, 
you know, God's in control when he's asleep in the boat. Um, but then also in his uh, passion, right, he, he takes a sleep of rest, right? He, he's crucified and he, he, um, there's a Sabbath, right, a rest day where he's asleep and then he rises in the morning, right? So this is kind of um, death and resurrection language, okay? And he himself does not know how. Now, I think that applies um, more to us than to Jesus, um, of course, Jesus knows how everything works. Although sometimes you do get these passages like um, later on when uh, in, uh, in Matthew, in the uh, apocalypses, when the, uh, says not even, not, Jesus says not even the son knows the day or the hour when he's going to come back, right? Or like the uh, Garden in Gethsemane where it, it's almost like we, I mean, we don't want to take this too far, um, but, but really it's just a distinction between Jesus' human and divine natures. But um, where Jesus says, if there be a way, let this cup pass from me. You know, And of course, in one sense, Jesus knows there's not another way. But in another sense, it's like the Father's will is somewhat obscured by, from Jesus, right? Or at least he kind of, and his human nature um, allows himself to, for it to be hidden in a way, um, which is mysterious. And of course, uh, like this is one of those things where I should stop talking because I'm probably going to start saying heresy if I try and like describe the inner workings of the Trinity too much. Um, but uh, I, it is interesting, right, that if we kind of interpret this man as Christ, it says he does not know how it grows. Um, but I do think this is more so not talking about Christ, but about us when we sow the seed on earth. And this is very similar to um, when Paul says that um, Paul planted Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the growth, right? So we can spread the gospel, um, but we don't know how it is that it actually takes root and changes someone's heart. And um, having been involved, you know, in many, many baptisms and confirmations and let's just say generally evangelism experiences at this point in my life, um, I can say that that's certainly true, that I'm always amazed, right, at how people are changed by the gospel, right? And especially, like, it's very humbling because I don't do a lot, right? Like, I teach this like old book from 500 years ago called Luther's Small Catechism, and then their entire life has changed. You know, it's um, and of course the content is amazing, but uh, you know, I just I talk to people, I answer their questions, I preach the word, and through that, someone's entire life has changed, right? And they they go from unbelief to belief. They go from um, being lost to being found, right? This is the amazement that the father has when the son comes home, right? It's, uh, we can't, in some ways, you just, it's un, um, ununderstandable, right? And uh, so God gives the growth, right? But this is, this is if, from a kingdom perspective, right? This is God's kingdom on earth. So the, the seed is scattered throughout the earth, right? God sends out his preachers, the church plants churches, the gospel goes forth, and um, kind of in the blink of an eye, without anyone looking, right, all of a sudden we have this worldwide church, right? And it is a beautiful thing. Um, there's a couple videos on YouTube I can, I can send around. It's like a two-part video, uh, two-part where you can watch um, a, a map um, count up the years since, uh, I think since like 33 AD or whatever, when Jesus, you know, was... Um, crucified, rose again, and ascended into heaven, and uh, watch, like, where the church has gone, right, on a world map, and, like, it's color-coded, and it, you know, grows, and then it shrinks sometimes, but then it grows in other places, and so on, and it's really, it's really a beautiful thing um, that, it, that it does this, right, and um, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head, right, that contain within the crucifixion, and I think this is what the uh, head is, right? Or the, the seed, right? The initial seed, the blade. 
Um, if you think about a corn piece of corn growing up, right, you just get that initial little sprout out of the ground. I think what that is is Jesus' death and resurrection, right? That, um, and from there, all of a sudden that grounds and sprouts and, and then it, it spreads, right? And of course, this is how plants and nature work, um, uh, is, and you, you can even see this in your yard, especially with weeds, right? Is that if they flower and then the seed spreads, then it goes everywhere, right? And so this is the idea that the, the grain ripens. Now, when, um, when the grain fully ripens, right, verse 29, then immediately he, and this is where you think, okay, this is Jesus again, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come, right? And that's the judgment at the end of the world. That's Christ coming back. Um, and, and, of course, Jesus himself interprets this later when he gives the parable about the, um, the wheat and the tare, right? That when the harvest comes, he separates out the wheat and the tare. So the harvest is the end of the world. All right, and then we get the parable of the mustard seed, very similar. Oh, wait, any questions about the growing seed? Oh, you're good. I thought you had a really important question or something. I do, but I'm not allowed to ask questions. What? Did Pastor Vanderbush tell you that? Um, while you're moving, I'm looking up that hymn. 892. Was it, is it that one or is it a different one? Yeah, it is that. Okay, so uh, stanza two. Um, All the world is God's own field, fruit unto his praise to yield. This is this parable. I, I mean, well, both the, and the wheat and the tares parable too. Wheat and tares together sown, unto joy or sorrow grown, First the blade and then the ear, then the full corn shall appear. Lord of harvest, grant that we wholesome grain and pure may be. It's nice. Okay. I think uh, hymns sometimes are are very good interpreters of texts because they um, put the they put the text into poetry, which makes us think of it in a different way, right? So. Um, yeah, if you can sing enough hymns that you kind of get these lines in your head, it's always good when you read the Bible and then you're like, oh, yeah. Okay. Parable of the mustard seed. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds in the air may nest under its shade. So again, um, it's almost like the disciples, you know, we had this whole thing last time we were together and we talked about these things, about the sower, the seed, and how the disciples are like confused and Jesus has to explain to them the purpose of parables and, you know, to him who has ears, let him hear all that stuff. It's almost like he's being really patient with the disciples because, um, he, they like are just maybe staring in awe or they're not really understanding. Um, but it's also almost like he's a little bit annoyed, right? He's like, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or what parable shall we picture it? Like, I've already done this three times now. You don't get it yet, you know? Um, sometimes I have those feelings with uh, being being a father, right? You know, it's like, I've, I've explained this like four different ways. Like, how do you not understand? Um, anyway, that's beside the point. All right. Is it like a mustard seed? When it is sown on the ground, it's smaller than all the seeds of the earth, but when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs. So again, very similar idea here that the seed that is sown does not look glorious, Right, the seed that is sown looks small, right? And of course, later Jesus will compare a mustard seed to the to faith, right? That that faith, um, faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. So, uh, if you have ever seen mustard seeds, right, they're like um, almost like a powder. Yeah, almost like a powder, a little bit bigger than that, but but certainly small. And Jesus is a farm boy, right? So Jesus uses farm analogies. Um, so speaking of the Midwest, right, the, the farmers should get this. 
But this is the idea is that um, the cross looks like foolishness to the Gentiles. And it is a stumbling block to the Jews because it looks so humble, right? It looks so foolish. It looks so, um, and not just foolish, but uh, offensive, right? That, that a guy hanging naked on a cross would be the salvation of the world. And so it's small in this way, right? It's like, because I mean, think about how many people have been, um, you know, kill, hung up for crimes throughout the history of the world. I mean, we have we we probably have a lot less uh, death penalty today in in this country than um, most countries have had through the history of the world, right? I mean, the death penalty is. Uh, extremely common throughout history. I mean, it, every people has practiced that basically, right? Um, and so what's one guy being killed for some crime, right? Like, what is that? It's, it seems like nothing, it's small, right? And, and small, but also foolish that that would be the kingdom of the world, right? The kingdom of God. And, and he says it's like this, right? It's small and it's, it looks meaningless to the world, but when it grows, it's bigger than anything you could ever imagine, right? And it's got shoots going out all over the place, and it's got huge trees that branches that the birds can land on. So what plant are they talking about here? Because what I know about mustard is just a, a weed about two feet tall. Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, all analogies break down at some point, right? And um, he's saying that it starts like a mustard seed, but then it grows into this, you know, massive forest, basically, right? It, it grows uh, over the, the whole, it's like a weed that took over the entire earth, right? And so um, the seed is the, the main point of analogy, not the rest of the plant, I think. Okay. I think. And so, yeah, because it says greater than all herbs, right? Because mustard is kind of an herb, right? You get like mustard greens or whatever. Right, yeah. It's not a very plant. Right, it's not. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no, you're right. I think, um, and I, and I think that's in some ways that is part of the analogy that the mustard plant, the mustard seed, is unimpressive. But then he's saying this type, this one, right? This this gospel that's like a mustard seed is grows into something greater than all of that. Yeah. Right. Well. He Jesus Jesus lived in the Middle East, not in you know Eastern Mississippi. So this is the the difference. Yeah, yeah, he did have the cedars of Lebanon. Yeah, it's true. And that's that's another analogy. I mean, that's um, the cedars of Lebanon are used to describe God's glory in the Old Testament. But yeah, right. Yeah. All right. It should be noted cedar trees can grow to be 50, 70 feet tall and equally as wide. Yeah. They are major yeah. huge. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, but since I've seen them for real, the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, oh, yeah. I, That's right. You would know better than all of us. Years, I thought you might like that extra perspective. And it's a very hard, hard wood, mm-hmm. which is why it was such so um, good to be to be used to build ships with. Right, and the temple. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a hard wood. It's very hard, sturdy wood, like ebony or you know, rather than balsa wood or something like that. It, it's not easily bendable or you know, it, it can hold a lot of weight. Well, cedar's naturally. Uh... I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too far, but it's like more naturally water resistant, right? Because you use like I beg your pardon. More naturally water resistant because you use cedar for like fences and right. stuff like that, right? Instead of instead the, of pine. The, the, the cedar we have is relatively soft. Right. It's a different species. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So then um, we do get these two quick verses here, um, kind of hearkening back to what we talked about earlier with the sower, the seed, and the purpose of parables. 
And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So it is interesting, right, that um, he kind of confirms what he said earlier, that publicly he teaches in parables so that those who have no faith will not understand the full mysteries of the kingdom of God. Um, but that when he's with his disciples, he will exp- he's, he is uh, merciful in this way and that his kind of dumbfounded disciples, <laughs> so to speak, um, not to be too harsh for, with them, but um, that seem to be dumbfounded here, he is gracious enough to uh, more clearly explain in private, right? And you do see this through the gospel, um, and especially when you compare the gospels with Acts, that the disciples do go from an immaturity to a maturity. That they initially are weak and don't understand everything Jesus is talking about, and that if anything, they just want him to be this like magical, miracle worker, future king of Israel type of person. Um, and they kind of want to ride his coattails. But then by Acts, you get this uh, these mature disciples who are out to plant churches and spread the gospel, right? And they understand it all. And Paul says this, right? He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, but when I became an adult, I gave up childish things, right? That the faith, there is such a thing as immature faith and mature faith and everything in between. And we should strive to grow up, right? <laughs> in a way that we can understand um, the word better and grow in the knowledge of, of Jesus, We often talk about that in prayers and such, that we'd grow in the knowledge of Jesus. Okay. And um, we got about 10 minutes left. I think maybe we'll get through the end of chapter 4 at least. Um, Maybe we'll start start chapter 5. Any questions on that? All right. When in the waves obey Jesus. Verse 35. On the same day when the evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. That's going to be important at the beginning of chapter 5, by the way. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And it's interesting the details Mark includes, right? Because Mark is very short compared to the other Gospels, but... He includes these little random things like he was on a, asleep on a pillow. Um, I wonder if that's connected uh, tangentially to uh, Mark is big on garments later on in the gospel. Um, when he, his, uh, the, the, naked, the, the man who's with Jesus at his arrest, his garment's torn off and he runs away naked. And then the resurrection account has a lot about garments in it. Um, or maybe, maybe even better than that, as I'm just sitting here thinking about it, is the uh, resurrection itself, right? That Jesus, um, his garments are folded up in the tomb, right? Maybe like he was lying on a pillow in the tomb. And this is very resurrection-esque, right? That, that you have, um, again, the sleeping Jesus and then the waking Jesus, right? And he's asleep in the tomb, right? Because for the, for the Christian, and obviously for Jesus, death is nothing else but a sleep, Right, it's a rest. It's it's not a, a it's not eternal torment. Um, it's I. This is why we always say that the Christian has fallen asleep in Christ, and that's not just a euphemism. You know, that's that's true. That's all that's happened is they're falling. They've just fallen asleep. It's a deep sleep, you know, but it's it's just a sleep. Right. You're gonna to have to explain the cultural reference to me. Oh, yeah. Okay, I knew that. Now you tell me that makes. I hear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because he he was um, what was the big cultural thing he was caught up in recently? Yeah, he used to be a cocaine addict, and then he's whatever. But that wasn't he t- take some big political stand recently? Yeah, I can't. Re- I thought he like. Yeah, right, right. No, you're good. That makes sense. Sure. 
I, I recognize the name when you say it. I just kind of place it in, uh, right away. So. Jesus was on my pillow. <laughs> yeah. Um, he should have he should have called it like the uh, the, the, the yeah, or the uh, what what verse is that yeah the Mark four thirty eight ministry or something. <laughs> All right. Um, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, recall that we talked, we had this discussion a long time ago when we started chapter 4 about the sower of the seed, because what does Jesus do? Like, Jesus has been on a boat the whole time. Right? He's, been, he's already been on this boat the entire chapter. And, and he did that so he could get far enough away from the crowd so that he could preach to them so that they could all hear him along the Sea of Galilee um, at, in Capernaum. By the way, fun fact about Capernaum. Um, I taught Nahum this morning, and I didn't know this uh, before I had taught it, but um, Capernaum likely is the uh, place that Nahum was originally from, uh, which is Eklosh in, in Hebrew, in, uh, well, in the Old Testament, because Nahum, the prophet, is an Ekloshite, but no one knows where Eklosh is, or Eklosh, or Eklo, or whatever the city was. No one knows where it was. But um, Capernaum means village of Nahum, so the theory is that when the Israelites got back from captivity is they renamed the, the place where Nahum was from after, after the prophet, right? So, but Capernaum is the center of Jesus' ministry, right? And, and Mark, as we've been talking about. So um, it would be interesting to go and read Nahum and see if what connections you can find with Jesus' ministry. Um, anyway, okay. So he's in Capernaum, right? He's on the Sea of Galilee, he's in the boat. And we talked about how important um, this, the water, again, like I kind of preached on earlier, is one of these huge themes in the Bible. And then boats, likewise, go along with that, right? So you got Noah's Ark, um, and, and Jesus is constantly uh, kind of on the sea with the boats, right, so on and so forth. And so he gets, he's in this boat, and um, he falls asleep, and the winds are beating on them. And notice they call him teacher, right? They call him rabbi. Um, they don't call him. They don't call him by his name, right? And they don't call him Lord yet. They will later on. Um, and they don't. They don't call him Son of God, right, <laughs> or anything like that. So they. This, this kind of gives away, to some degree, I think, their level of where they're at with Jesus, right? So they, they think he's amazing, right? They think he's some sort of miracle worker or whatever. But still, he's been, they've been called as his disciples, right, which means his students. And so he's functioning as their rabbi or their teacher, which this was not all too uncommon in, the, in Second Temple Judaism, that there would be rabbis who would have students who would follow them. And... Maybe they think they're kind of going to become rabbis. Um, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, after Jesus uh, dies, they and and when he's raised, they seem to kind of go back to their old jobs immediately, right? They try and go back to being fishermen and stuff, but they don't like all become rabbis. <laughs> interestingly enough, but he he's raising them up, right? He's teaching them. They know he's teaching them, but they just don't fully get it yet, right? They don't see him as the son of God. They don't see him even really as the Messiah yet. I mean, they maybe they have some suspicions of that, but they don't see him as the Messiah yet. But he's on this boat, right? And there, there's these waves coming about, and he's already done all these healings. He's cast out these demons, and he just has sat there and described to them what the kingdom of God is like. And... Then they, they wake him up and they say, you know, don't you care that we are perishing? And so he arises and rebukes the wind and the waves. 
It says, peace be still. And there was calm. Now, this, um, before I get too far ahead of myself, this, the way he says that, it harkens back to uh, Psalm 46, right? Which we had, we had Psalm 46 today actually in song with a mighty fortress, right? That's where a mighty fortress comes from. Psalm 46, but uh, be still and know that I am God, right? Psalm 46.10. And um, it's interesting, right? He says, peace be still. Because if he's quoting Psalm 46, right, the rest of that is know that I am God, (laughs) right? And you kind of wonder if that's what they're thinking, right? But I love this because he says, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith, right? Don't you get it yet? And it, you know, on one hand, you're like, when we look back on it and we see the history of who Jesus is and everything that's happened and what, and we can interpret these passages leading up to now, we're like, well, yeah, duh. I mean, of course Jesus can calm the wind and the waves because he's God, right? Oh, and the other thing here is that, you know, the son of God thing has already come up multiple times, but even the demons have already confessed this is the son of God, right? And so to us, in one way, we can say, well, it's obvious yeah, they, it's like they don't have faith. They don't understand. Like, how can they not trust in Jesus at this point? On the other hand, um, it makes complete sense that they don't have faith yet because they are weak humans like we are. And, um, you know, we know the whole story. They didn't know the whole story yet, right? And this is kind of what we've talked about a little bit before is that, uh um, the disciples were not, and the Jew, Jewish people in general, were not necessarily expecting the Messiah to have the authority of God, right? They were expecting a great king. They were expecting someone who could do great things. And they were expecting a man, but they weren't necessarily expecting the Son of God. And when, when he comes as the Son of God, that authority that he has, and this is one of the main themes in Mark is authority, the authority he has not only over you know, the ability to heal sicknesses and the ability to cast out demons, but here we see the authority over creation is astounding. And I think if we were his disciples, we wouldn't have gotten it either, right? Yeah, John. Well, I, I'm going to side on the idea that these guys, his disciples are... Well, as he says, he rebukes them for their lack of faith. Uh, they're afraid they're going to perish. Mm-hmm. Even though he's in the, the boat with them, why would they perish if he's in the boat with them? He's not going to perish. Therefore, they're not going to perish. They're not making the connection there. So, right, they're not making uh, the connection. Oh, you see that in the last sentence. They have no idea who he is. Yeah, who can this be? Yeah. Right. Now, that is an interesting verse because it's opening up that it's, you can see them, kind of what I said earlier, moving from immaturity to maturity, because that's not a bad question. Right, it's a transitional question. It's a transitional question, right? They're starting to wonder, like, who is this? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And um, I, I do kind of love this about the disciples that you can see this transition from this immaturity to maturity, right? Where they begin to recognize who he is. And and eventually, I mean, you do get in the Gospels. Um, I can't remember how Mark handles this, if, or if it's in Mark or not. But I know it, I always quote it from Matthew. In Matthew 16, I mean, eventually Peter recognizes you are Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And Thomas, my Lord and my God, right? So that it is a wonderful thing, I think, to be, because we are disciples too, right? We're students of Jesus. And it's a wonderful thing to recognize this movement from a faith that is immature to a faith that is mature. And um, one thing I'll, I'll kind of end on this, the idea of faith, right? He rebukes them for their lack of faith, but this is also, and he says, you know, you have, it, I think I think when he says you have no faith, that's kind of hyperbolic, right? I mean, it's a rebuke, so it's supposed to be harsh, right? It's like when, um, I'll tell you a good story, right? So um, my, my brother's mother-in-law, so my brother's wife's mother, 
um, who I know pretty well. She used to be a school bus driver and um, public school bus driver. And um, she is a very uh, energetic person, right? And she she's uh, she's got quite a she's very kind of quite a personality, right? Um, big personality. And um, one day this kid would not s- stop standing up on the bus, and she kept telling him, "Sit down, sit down, sit down," you know. And eventually, she just turned around and said, "If you don't sit down right now, I'm gonna kill you." Right? <laughs> Which, if you know, if you know Jan, um, it's it's actually quite funny. Um, you know, obviously she did not literally mean that, but of course the um, principal did not like that very much right? when the kid went home and told their parents. But it's kind of like that, right? When Jesus says, "How is it that you have no faith?" Right? I think it's a hyperbole. It's not that they, you know, they're going to go to hell if they die. They have no faith, right? It's that they're they're just not understanding Jesus, right? And um, there's there's this thing with faith, right, where we it's not bad to have a little faith, right? In fact, it's good to have a little faith. Faith, size of a mustard seed can move mountains. That said, we also want to have a, we also want to be growing in faith, right? We want to be maturing in faith and having a bigger and bigger faith. So a little faith's not bad. It's better than nothing, right? But um, that that also can deserve a rebuke, right? So it's it's like, Yes, wonderful you have little faith, but also have better faith, right? So Jesus at the same time can kind of bless it and rebuke it. Um, But anyway, yeah, like I said, I think it's wonderful to see the disciples because we're disciples, right? So it's wonderful to see them grow in faith over the course of the gospel. All right, any um, final questions or comments? It's a good place to end. I'm going to pick up chapter 5 next week. All right. Let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your life-giving word, especially from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We pray that you would be with us and help us to see your power and authority. Help us to see your kingdom growing and help our faith to grow. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Thank you. Yeah.